0: back to the 4th Way Podcast. We recently finished a sub-series within this season that took a look at how Christianity has wielded government. And it wasn't pretty. It still isn't pretty, I might add, you know, when Christianity tries to make out with the state. That mini-series showed what Christianity has done with the governmental power that it has wielded. In the last episode, we explored why Christianity used power as it did, and why the historical examples that we viewed are the logically consistent outworkings of the acceptance of Christendom's sacral marriage between the church and the state. In this episode, we are going to look more at the how. How did Christian thought even begin to entertain the marriage of church and state? This episode will then be a bridge for our final section in our case, which is going to explore Christianity's relation to the state. There, we'll discuss the consequences or the effects that marrying the state has had on Christianity. Before I get into this episode proper, let me recap just a bit. The state. The state is an institution which we likened to the mafia. They offer you services that you may or may not want, and they force you to pay for said services at the price which they determine. And if you don't pay that price, they'll bash your knees in. The state monopolizes violence, and it wields that violence for the preservation and advancement of power. And the state justifies the monopolization of this violence and theft by asserting their authority. Often, especially in Christendom, their supposed God-given authority. Yet we explored how the authority of any state is fabricated, both because tracing the origin and inheritance of its authority back leads to a foundationless beginning of illegitimate authority, and also because most authorities have originated out of violent force. Most states are states because a group of people got together and decided to assert themselves, through force, over some other group of people, or over some other authority. Or they inherit their authority from a country who obtained its authority in such a manner. Can any authority obtained illegitimately legitimately be called legitimate authority? How is such a concept intelligible? Let me give you a hint. It's not. Now, when Christianity married the state, it had an advantage over prior secular states. Christian rulers had God's law available to them. They could, so they said, clearly see and discern God's will and expectations. And why wouldn't we want the good guys, you know, the spiritual guys, the guys with a direct connection to the mind of God, to be the ones in power? the ones with a monopolization of force. Not only did they have direct line to God through prayer, but they could also see how God handled civic matters in the past, through the Old Testament. I mean, they had to forget for a moment how Jesus handled civic matters and civil authorities. They had to look to the Old Testament. Nevertheless, they did have the Old Testament. They had a civic document there, directly from God. And it's where we see all the civil laws, you know, the ones that Jesus forgot to reiterate and condone as he was showing us what God the Father was truly like. Christians with the Old Testament in hand began to rule consistently, enforcing sacralism, enforcing outward compliance, legislating morality, enforcing moral obedience, and favoring the church by supporting it with state funds. Christendom is essentially 1,500 years of Christian Sharia law. So, in light of that rocky church history, the question that we want to dig in today is, how did Christianity get past the Bible's negative view on government, Jesus' nonviolent example, and the anti-Nicene church's abstention, or at least strong skepticism, in regard to engaging in government? I'm going to argue that there were two big intellectual hurdles which Christianity faced when it came to having God condone their governmental pursuits. Number one, how do we deal with the injustice inherent to governments? And number two, from where is government's authority derived? Now please understand that I am not at all saying that early Christendom necessarily answered these questions directly. They might not have even known that they were questions that needed to be answered. I think these answers were more implicit than explicit. So the early church may not have recognized that they were answering these questions, when in reality, they were answering them through their actions. The church, which would run government or condone it, had to answer how it could condone an institution as governed by God, which used means antithetical to his kingdom, and it had to explain how government obtained and maintained its authority, In those veins, you get someone like Augustine who begins fabricating or expanding notions of just war, or Salvian who explains the barbarian attacks on Rome as judgment for Rome's lack of fidelity to God. So they may not have been addressing the big questions as stated here, but they were working on these questions indirectly, maybe without even knowing it. So since I'm not aware of these questions being answered very directly in the early church— I'm going to be using two Enlightenment philosophers to get at the heart of these big ideas. In this episode, I will be referring to Edmund Burke and David Hume. And I think that using Burke and Hume is going to be helpful because these are two men who arrived on the tail end of Christendom. And they have the benefit of hindsight and recognizing the questions with which the early church was answering while they probably didn't even realize that they were answering these questions. And I think Burke and Hume can help to synthesize the narrative that the church in Christendom has created over its lifetime. So let's dig in first by discussing the first idea mentioned. How do we deal with the injustice of governments? This idea is perhaps most famously raised by Edmund Burke, who asked the question that I'll distill in this form: who watches the Watchmen? But... Here's the fuller quote so you can kind of grasp the the more full context. Quote, Parties in religion and politics make sufficient discoveries concerning each other to give a sober man a proper caution against them all. The monarchic, aristocratical, and popular partisans have been jointly laying their axes to the root of all government and have in their turns proved each other absurd and inconvenient. In vain you tell me that artificial government is good, but that I fall out only with the abuse. The thing, the thing itself is the abuse. Observe, my lord, I pray you, that grand error upon which all artificial legislative power is founded. It was observed that men had ungovernable passions, which made it necessary to guard against the violence they might offer to each other. They appointed governors over them for this reason— But a worse and more perplexing difficulty arises. How to be defended against the governors? In vain they change from a single person to a few. These few have the passions of the one, and they unite to strengthen themselves and to secure the gratification of their lawless passions at the expense of the general good. In vain do we fly to the many. The case is worse. Their passions are less under the government of reason. They are augmented by the contagion. And defended against all attack by their multitude. End quote. So basically, the question is if the king is the ultimate authority, who then watches over the king to make sure that he adheres to what is right? And if the king is given authority in order to help restrain evil passions, passions which all men have, then how, when you get a group of people together and call them a government, don't they fall to the same temptation as any other individual or group, given that they are men and therefore have the exact same passions? I mean, doesn't the king have passions as well? And don't his princes and lords also have passions? With a concentration of power, isn't having a supreme watchman as a king or parliament even more dangerous because a group of people with passions who have the concentrated power to fulfill those passions is more dangerous than individuals having their own separate passions? Doesn't this lead to exploitation and injustice over those without power? I mean, that's essentially what government is. It's the concentration of the power of the masses into a group of men and women with similar passions and flaws who, through the concentration of power and the monopoly of violence provided by government, can fulfill those passions at the expense of the masses. Now I love the terminology that Burke uses here artificial government right it's government by force and government by force is forced it's artificial government is not a natural grouping of free will decision makers not even democracies are that a democracy might maximize the free will decision making but it still subjects a minority and often a sizable minority and sometimes even a a majority if you have a bunch of different parties, to the threat of the state. I mean, it's the 2016 election, Hillary or Trump. Those who voted for Hillary were subjected to a rule that they didn't agree with, backed by the sword of the state. And that was a majority, right? Because more people voted for Hillary than, than they did for Donald. I, who did not vote for either Clinton or Trump, was also subjected to policies and politicians that I disagreed with. That's government in a nutshell. It's filled with false dichotomies, lesser of two evil decisions, and gun-to-your-head morality. Now, before going on any further, we do need to discuss the context of Burke's quote here. Because Burke's question of who watches the watchman arises in his work entitled A Vindication of Natural Society, or a view of the miseries and evils arising to mankind from every species of artificial society. While this work would make a good anarchist piece, a lot of people think that Burke wrote this as satire. Why? Because he himself admits that it was satire. Though some think that really he was saying this because, you know, it was political expedience here. But Burke said of his work, quote, the design was to shew that without the exertion of any considerable forces, the same engines which were employed for the destruction of religion might be employed with equal success for the subversion of government, and the specious arguments might be used against those things which they who doubt of everything else will never permit to be questioned. Quote. If I were going to summarize what I think Burke is saying here, it would be that political skepticism leads to political nihilism, And we know that political nihilism is absurd, right? Because we need governments. We couldn't live life if we were political nihilists. If we were self-determined, free, independent, gasp, anarchists, that would be absurd. I mean, Burke recognizes that we all know that some authorities are legitimate and that the world needs to run on government. Like, we know that. And so he created this reductio ad absurdum where, uh, you know, he gives us this scenario that uh, to to us modern-day anarchists sounds like, yeah, Burke, you're so right on. But to him, he's like, oh, this is so absurd. I don't even need to tell people it's satire because, like, we just couldn't live life without government. I find that really amusing, actually, that, you know, given all that we know about governments— Uh, especially the horror of the, uh, the 20th century governments, it's really easy to read Burke's satire as true realism because his satire just makes so much more sense than his view of reality and the fairy tale that he has about governments being good and necessary goods. So one of the questions that I had is, how did Burke make such a misstep, at least what seems like a misstep to me, you know How did he make such a coherent argument through satire um, for a, a case why government is absurd? I think Burke likely made the same mistake that the whole of Christendom has made for the entirety of its lifespan, from Constantine to present. The mistake in thinking is that because God is sovereign and he says that he orders the universe, and because God is a God of order— Therefore, government is desired by God to order the universe. And hey, if the good guys, a.k.a. me and my group, have the opportunity to get power and lord it over others like the Gentiles do, then that's even better. Because we will align society, by force, with what God wants, more than any of the other heathen parties or groups will. So, I think if Burke were to answer the question, who watches the watchmen, I would imagine that he or those in his camp would answer, well, God watches the watchmen, of course, through us, because God is in control even over the rulers and empires. Just Romans 13, that question. It was likely also helpful for Burke that his group controlled much of the world, the British Empire, in which the sun never set. So it made sense that government was orderly because Burke and his group were the ones ordering history in the name of God. And of course, I believe it's true that God is in control. I believe Romans 13, 1 Peter, Revelation, and the Old Testament truths about God bringing about justice in his time. But what much of Christendom has done is say that because God orders history, we should too, and on his behalf, at the edge of the sword. So for Burke, there was a big W, watchman, and he was easy to believe in because the English were in control, and God was conveniently administering justice over the face of the earth exactly as the English were administering it. How convenient, right? Nation and religion were one and the same. And that's why for Burke, it was absurd to think that his realistic, rational argument, which absolutely made sense for anarchism, that's why Burke thought it was satire, because he couldn't imagine not being in control. And yet, within a relatively short period of time, Burke's own government, his own empire that he couldn't imagine the world running without, was assaulted by a number of groups of, of uh, people that they controlled because of their injustice, whether that's in the, uh, the Americas or, or uh, India. So in Burke's mind, political skepticism, or nihilism, which he thought was so absurd, would clearly be satirical to his readers. This was due in part to the fact that Burke linked this political skepticism to an ideology which would then lead to religious skepticism. As Burke says, The same engines which were employed for the destruction of religion might be employed with equal success for the subversion of government. Like I said, Nation and religion were one and the same. Attacking religion was attacking government, or it was at least in the same vein. Therefore, attacking government would also be to attack religion. This is Christendom at its finest, the marriage of church and state, the conflation of little K kingdoms and big K kingdom. So it may be true that human kingdoms are watched over by God, but there's a big difference in viewing God as the boss over some desired management position and God as the judge over unjust kingdoms. The first view sees God as a watchman or manager who partners with his rivals and competitors, individuals and groups which seek to usurp God's kingship, build towers to heaven, and define good and evil for themselves. And that seems to be essentially Burke's view. Burke and his group, his empire, are good workers of God who are spreading God's kingdom over the world at the edge of the sword to make sure that other groups become like them, the ministers of God. The second way that you could take that, though, is that God is a watchman who always ensures that the evil, which seeks to define good and evil for itself, or to usurp God's kingship or build towers to heaven, that this evil eventually reaps its consequences, and that good can come even out of the attempted usurpation of God's throne, and that injustice won't tarry on forever in any particular instantiation of government. Now those are two very different philosophies of religion and government. So yeah, you should definitely go check out Burke's satire, he makes some great points against the state without really meaning to. Let's wrap this section up. So for our first question, how do you deal with the injustices of government? Christendom's answer is clearly that you try to partner more with God in domineering the populace through the sword. The wise ruler with the connection to God must guide his sheeple with the rod. The things that we have seen in the past few episodes are a result of this view of Christianity, which turns the God-king and judge of the Bible into a president or CEO who gives his rival's authority to do violence in his name. God shares his dominion over humanity with a select few people, and those select few people, in their wisdom, ought to be our group, the Christians who are willing and able to build the type of society that we know God must want and to force into submission those who are antithetical to that society. And of course, we need our sacralism to help accomplish that. The use of the state to indoctrinate everyone into our group. Hence, prayer in schools, in God we trust, on our currency, one nation under God in a pledge, ten commandments in courthouses, the regulation of marriage, etc., etc., etc. And that places Christianity and government into a mutualistic relationship. A Christianity that wants to wield government views an attack on Christianity as an attack on societal order, and an attack on government as an attack on Christianity and its values. That's exactly how Burke was thinking. This is why transgressing religion or the state are both so anathematized by the Christians of Christendom. Because if God the CEO is a watchman who will punish our nation for not making it as we envision, I mean, as he envisions, then we can't let anybody defy us in our attempt to make society what it ought to be. And the persuasion of Christianity becomes the coercion of Christendom. Injustice moves away from God's definition of injustice and becomes defined by what preserves our group and what fits with our ideologies, since we are the tools and mouthpieces of God himself. So God is the watchman, and we in power who claim to be Christians are, by extension, henchmen. I mean, watchmen too. Wow. Thank you, Mr. Burke, for that insight. Plus one point for your fantastic satire, and minus ten points for your horrendous propping up of Christendom. That takes care of the first question for us. How does Christendom handle the injustices inherent to government? And that brings us to our second question, answered by Christendom. From where does government derive its authority? Like most things in Christendom, the answer is simple. We got a Sunday school answer to the first question. Who watches the watchman? God. And guess what? We get a Sunday school answer to this one too. From where does government derive its authority? God. Simple. Of course, I think the anti-Nicene church would agree with this answer, as the New Testament is pretty clear about it. Governmental systems are ordained by God and allowed by Him, in so much as they do His will. We are to submit where we can to government. And for much of history, Christendom did this fairly well in terms of not being revolutionary. Governments were not usurped from within by the population. There weren't revolts of Christians. You have to remember that for most of Burke's life, as well as for David Hume, the guy that we're about to discuss, revolution wasn't much of a reality. Whereas for us today, we're very familiar with revolutions throughout history, because so many have happened in the past couple hundred years. But for them, revolution was a relatively new thing. So for most of Christendom, authority very clearly came from God. No question about it. That meant that if Nero had power, we were to submit, and if Constantine had power, we were to submit. But with the Protestant Reformation and the subsequent Enlightenment, much more emphasis began being placed on the individual. People could now read their own Bibles, and people could start having their own political thoughts, more so, at least. In this Enlightenment period, David Hume came on the scene, And I think he helps us to dig a little deeper into where rulers derive their authority. Now I want to start off with an extended quote from Hume that uh, is going to be foundational for what we're going to discuss. Hume says, quote, Nothing appears more surprising to those who consider human affairs with a philosophical eye than the easiness with which the many are governed by the few, and the implicit submission with which men resign their own sentiments and passions to those of their rulers. When we inquire by what means this wonder is effected, we shall find that, as force is always on the side of the governed, the governors have nothing to support them but opinion. It is therefore on opinion only that government is founded, and this maxim extends to the most despotic and most military governments, as well as to the most free and most popular. The sultan of Egypt, or the emperor of Rome, might drive his harmless subjects like brute beasts against their sentiments and inclination, but he must, at least, have led his mamelukes, or praetorian bands, like men, by their opinion. End quote. So, Hume asks how it is that one person in a monarchy, or very few people in other governmental systems, can govern so many other people? How can they govern the masses? Because force is on the side of the masses, right? Sure, they, they do have some force at their disposal, but that can't explain it because one person has so little physical power over a multitude of persons. Hume argues that it's really, it boils down to opinion that controls people or at least a significant group of the people. Many of the citizens may hate a king, but the king has to at least hold sway over the opinions of his armies and or his commanders. So, government derives its authority from the masses, and the masses go along with the king either because he is legitimate in their opinion, or he is a legitimate threat due to his control of the opinions of the army. As Hume says in his fine summary, it is therefore on opinion only that government is founded. Now, I think Hume was on to something, but he should have extended the idea just a little bit further. Or maybe he did extend it and I'm just not familiar with his work, which is a very real possibility. But I'm going to pull from David Graeber here and expound on this idea that Hume presents. So Graeber, in his book, The Dawn of Everything, says that there are really three ways in which all power is wielded and maintained. Governmental power, not excluded. Violence, information, and charisma. And so Graeber gives the story of this lady who has this really expensive jewelry, like let's say a a diamond necklace. And so she she can't beat up anybody who tries to come and, and take this necklace, and she doesn't have you know a, a strong boyfriend or husband or whatever who can beat people up. She doesn't have violent force at her beck and call. And so um, she still wants this necklace, though. And so even though she doesn't have violent power at her disposal, she is able, through the power of information, to keep. To keep uh, her jewelry safe, right? So she knows where her safe is. She knows the combination to it. Um, she knows when she's going to wear the necklace and when she isn't. Um, and so, you know, she doesn't consistently wear it. And so, through information, she is actually able to keep this jewelry and use it when she desires. Um, and yeah, through information, kind of keep it safe, essentially but if she comes to a point where she's not able to really keep the information safe right so other people know where she lives or have the power to come and crack open safes whatever she still has one other tool of power at her disposal and that's charisma right she might just be so well liked uh and might be able to talk people into things or barter or whatever that she's able through charisma to control the sentiments of people and therefore keep her jewelry from being stolen. So while I think Hume is spot on in terms of opinion um, determining government, um, I think that Graeber kind of adds to this idea of opinion to show why we might hold the opinions that we do. Our opinions are shaped by the potential violence that a government can do to us, but it's also shaped by propaganda, by the information that they choose to show us and choose to hide from us, and uh, the charisma that they use to hide those things and how believable they are. If we look at the anti-Nicene church, before they got into the military and government, they relied wholly on persuasion. Now, I don't know if I'd even consider this charisma because in my mind, what Graeber means by charisma is something more manipulative. You know, charisma is more of a leveraging of personality or something like that. Persuasion is more about convincing, you know, in in my mind, it's more about convincing um, through a stated argument or, you know, a, a life lived, right? Example. But even if you want to argue that the early church wielded charisma as its power, it still means that those being evangelized responded of their own free will, and they did so without being forced and without having information uh, limited to them. Christians were dying in the Colosseum, dying running to help the diseased during pandemics, mocked by leaders, giving up wealth, and eating the body and blood of Jesus, making them cannibals. Early Christianity wasn't a religion propagated by the beautifying of the realities of Christianity. it was. Pretty up front. When Christendom came along, however, we see a huge change. The decor of the, the churches and the attire of the priests became much more ornate, lending to the charisma of the church. The state now had its hands in church councils, and people start vying to be those in control of the information. And information becomes more and more an inordinate focus of in-and-out groups. Churches eventually also end up doing masses and liturgies and reading the Bible in languages that the congregants can't even understand. The priests and popes are in control of the information. And of course, as we've seen in the last few episodes, there's all the violence of the church. The church's main tool of implementing this triumvirate of power was through sacralism. With the church and state intertwined, as they need to be when you accept both institutions as viable kingdoms, any assault on the one was an assault on the other, just like we saw with Burke. Baptisms began to be required of everyone, as everyone within the borders of a Christian state must be made to be Christian. Such was required not only for God's blessing, but for the kings to maintain their power, as they truly knew what Hume did— that their authority was derived from the consent of the masses. On a side note, this is, of course, why nonviolent civil resistance works. But that's for another season. You should go check out season seven if you haven't already. Governmental authority is derived from the masses. Yes, God is sovereign over government, but he's the judge of those who seek to usurp his throne, not the promoter of them. So, those rulers in Christendom fostered the consent of the people by anathematizing those who thought differently or those who didn't conform to the sacralistic expectations. The authority of the state, then, was proclaimed as being derived from God. Christendom is great at this Sunday school answer, right? God is behind us. That's what Christendom says. But what David Hume uncovers with his succinct observation is that governments really derive their authority from the consent of the governed. Of course, the church in Christendom would deny this tooth and claw, but you really have to ask yourself what Christendom showed us through its actions. we already saw that. Christendom's implementation of sacralism, forced baptism, forced conversion, book burnings, persecutions, etc., and the control of information, charisma, and the use of violence – These things prove that they recognize the consent of the governed or the opinion of the masses as the government's true derivation of authority. Christendom has long proved what David Hume has observed. Now, I can hear the retorts already. You're crazy, Derek. Authority is derived from God. Romans 13. Another of Christendom's favorite Sunday school answers. Romans 13. The church was told to submit to government because its authority is derived by God. The Bible clearly says that. Authority is derived by God. Now, I don't want to get into this too much here because I have an episode which we'll talk a lot more about this later. And I also have an episode on Romans 13. However, I do feel the need to summarize a response here. It's true that the New Testament tells Christians to submit to authorities. But it isn't because those authorities have a stamp of approval from God but rather because those authorities are subservient to God. Nothing they do passes outside of God's divine providence. And this is the hope of Romans 13, 1-7, a passage written when the government was persecuting Christians and a passage sandwiched between God's commands to love. Romans 13, 1-7 declares that we can love and do good despite government, knowing that God is sovereign over them. That is a very different thing than saying that God has divvied out his authority to them, providing his stamp of approval to the governments of Satan offered to him in the desert. No. Governments are usurpers of God. And the kingdom of God is an alternative kingdom. That's why the church was so persecuted. They were called atheists. They were angering the gods and destroying society. They were incestuous and kissed those that they called brothers and sisters. And the list could go on. The politics of Jesus was the kingdom of God which manifests itself as the church universal. All other kingdoms and authorities are usurpers, though usurpers who are not outside the providence and sovereignty of God. So does God accomplish good in his allowance of evil, usurping governments to punish evil at times? Sure. But these usurpers are to be obeyed only insofar as they don't conflict with the kingdom of God. So in my assessment... Hume's completely right. The authority of the usurpers of God's throne only have authority in so much as the masses uphold them with their consent and in their opinions. In all ways that usurpers enact the kingdom of God, we obey. Not because they have authority, but because God does. And in obeying a law which corresponds to the kingdom of God, we aren't really obeying Caesar, but rather we are obeying God through Caesar. Right? A broken clock is right twice a day, and when Caesar is a broken clock who aligns with God or doesn't conflict with God, we can obey. And that's not because we're obeying Caesar, it's because we're obeying God. Yet in every command which is antithetical to the kingdom of God, we refuse to obey. So hopefully that short answer makes some sense, but like I said, we'll be talking a bit more bit more about this when we discuss um Some awesome books on the kingdom um, towards the end of the season. And you can go back and check out the the Romans 13 uh, episode. And for now, this episode is already long enough. So what are our big takeaways? First, it's important to realize that when Christianity marries the state, it comes with some pretty terrible implications. Number one, it usurps God's kingship. Number two, It justifies the existence of wicked rulers by declaring them desired by God rather than used by God and judged by Him. Third, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one, um, the third problem with all of this is that the marriage of church and state makes revolution theologically problematic. On Christendom, revolution is problematic because if God watches over the rulers, and if God appoints rulers, then who are we, the individuals, to overturn God's anointed? Didn't David spare Saul's life and say that he wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed several times? It's why the Romans 13 chanting conservatives seem so ridiculous today. It's God's appointed ruler, so long as it's the ruler that they wanted appointed, so long as it's the ruler that looks like them, because the rulers that look like them must be the ones doing God's will. And this is exactly why I thought bringing up Burke and Hume together would be so good. And we love the idea that authority is derived by the masses because that allows us to justify 1776 and all other subsequent revolutions that we deem just. But embracing Hume here, we've run into Burke's problem, though admittedly he was trying to write it a satire. If we accept Hume that you and I and the rest of the masses are really who watches the Watchmen, that means that the watchmen therefore derive their authority from us. And if the watchmen derive their authority from us, government is a farce and a ruse, a fabrication of a society and the sentiments of any given moment. In embracing Hume's treatise on government, we find it impossible to denounce his relativistic moral system. 2016 and following has shown us what that bastardization looks like. It looks like a bunch of self-righteous religious fanatics who think their plans are God's plans and God's objective morality can be sacrificed for the current need or sentiment. Christendom then and now relativizes morality and places it in the hands of the elite, me and whoever my group is. So Christendom ends up being stuck between a rock and a hard place here, between a Burke and a Hume. Either God watches the watchmen and gives them their authority Or we do. But then again, God and us, our group, have always been one and the same in Christendom. So why would I expect them to begin making that distinction now? That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it.